go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and turn to 2nd Corinthians. Corinthians. Got him. All right, good. Not Samuel today. 2nd Corinthians as we take just a one-week break. Sermon of the Lord laid on my heart. Um, actually got to teach this to some students uh, last week at a Disciple Now, um, and I thought, looked at Amy afterwards, and she looked at me and thought, we need to preach this one to the church. <laughs> so, um, 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 12, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7, or I'm sorry, 1 through 10. We're going to read verses 1 through 10 this morning. Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows, How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be, or hears from me. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word together. Lord, we do thank You for this, Your most precious word. We thank You, Lord, that this is how You've chosen to speak to us, Your people. May we not just be hearers of the word, though let us be. May we also be doers of the word. Father, we are only going to be doers of the word if your spirit empowers us, enlightens us, and illuminates our hearts to the message of the gospel this morning. So we pray that, Lord, you will. And, Father, we trust that you're going to work mighty things, as you always do, through the proclamation of this your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The English poet William Henley is remembered mainly for just a single poem he wrote that was entitled Invictus, which is Latin for unconquered. Maybe you're familiar with this poem, but in the poem, this is what he says. I'm going to read it for you. He says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. 
Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I don't know if you've ever heard that poem before. It's pretty, pretty famous. Henley wrote the poem while he was recovering from a fight with tuberculosis, a fight that he would eventually lose as it would take his life. And as he was writing this in his fight against this disease, he was reflecting on his own battle. An atheist, Henley did not believe that there was any purpose whatsoever to his pain. It was just the bludgeoning of chance, as he wrote. But as the poem makes clear, he was determined to face his battles in life with courage. He would look within himself and find the strength needed to face it. His goal was to be the master of his fate. Over the years, this this poem has really inspired a, a lot of people. It's been read by leaders before they enter battle. Been read by people who are facing difficult circumstances as a means to draw strength from its courage. Even made a movie entitled Invictus about the South African rugby team that was inspired by this poem. In fact, I, I believe that Florida State University has a, has a uniform combo that they title Unconquerable. Not saying it has anything to do with this poem, as they've been conquered time and time before, but. <laughs> But we admire the poem, the courage we see in a poem like this, don't we? We're inspired by what, what appears to be greatness. I wonder, what do you think greatness is? Like, if I were just to ask you, hey, define greatness, what do you think it would be? I think for many, it would, it would include overcoming the odds, winning the big game, getting the the job of your dreams, having your political party win the election, making money, maybe for students, it's making straight A's, it's being noticed by your peers, it's having one of your Facebook posts go viral, getting a certain number of follows or friends being noticed by the people around you. It is to make a name for yourself, we would say. Doesn't that... Doesn't that sound like greatness? To to face a challenge, to look within, find strength, overcome the odds, and be the master of fate. Well, it might sound like greatness, but what if our definition of greatness is wrong? What if true greatness is something else? How can you know true greatness? Well, if you have a Bible again, let's look back into 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And and I want to reread verses 1 through 6 here as we see the Apostle Paul lay this out for us. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 6. It is doubtless not profitable, he says, for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. 
For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Okay, so so what do we see the Apostle Paul telling us in these first six verses of our text? I would argue that first what we see is that Paul's example calls on us to dismiss what we once thought about the world's applause. Paul's example here calls on us to dismiss what we once thought about the world's applause. And and really, as we we jump into this text, Paul's actually picking up from an idea he began in chapter 11. In fact, by the time we get to the end of this section in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, he actually says this. He, He groans saying, I've become a fool in boasting. You've compelled me or you have forced me to do it. Well, how did the Corinthians force the apostle Paul to boast? Here's a little bit of context. The there were these false teachers who crept into the Corinthian church when Paul left. And what they were doing is they were trying to turn them away from their allegiance to Paul and what he taught. Trying to turn them instead to the allegiance to themselves. And the way they did this was by boasting. They boasted as their status of their status as successful ministers. They boasted of their wealth. They boasted of how God spoke to them. In fact, that's one of the main things they boasted about, how God gave direct visions to them. And they were using these visions to draw a crowd from the Corinthian church. Right? You can imagine if, if I came in here and I preached the gospel message to you and there were just people waiting outside the door that said, you know what, I... I've actually got a vision from God. When's the last time Pastor Cody had a vision from God? Let me tell you about my vision from God. And hey, come follow me. It's essentially what they were doing. You can imagine the effect it would have. Right? It not only makes this false teacher kind of a spiritual cut above these people who aren't given those direct messages, but it also makes it so you can't argue with them, right? How do you argue with a false teacher that says the Lord told me to do this, right? I mean, if the the Lord told me that I need to come mow your lawn for the day, who am I to argue? Well, the church was impressed with these false revelations. They were boasting about it. And before long, the false teachers were using these visions as a way to turn the church against the Apostle Paul. You can hear them whispering, listen, we've got visions. You, You don't hear Paul talking about visions he's had recently from God. I mean, have you thought about the fact that maybe God's done with the Apostle Paul? Maybe Paul's yesterday's news, and and instead you need to start listening to us instead. So the Apostle Paul heard about this and, and knew that if they rejected Paul and went with these false teachers, they were not just rejecting him, they were rejecting the message he preached. The gospel and their eternity was at stake. And so if the only way to get their attention was to talk about visions, well then okay. Paul had real visions from God. So he says in verse 1, he says, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. What happened in this vision that the Apostle Paul received from God? In short... Paul says he was snatched up by God into the third heaven, which he later calls paradise. And and when you see third heaven, uh, paradise is kind of saying the exact same thing. 
See, during Paul's day, the Jews had several different ways of of labeling heavens. One of the ways they did so was in three levels. The first heaven is kind of the air we breathe, the the atmosphere. The second heaven was where the stars and the moon were in outer space. And then the third heaven is where God dwelt. That's why Paul refers to it as paradise. Then Paul goes on to say in verse 4 of our text... How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. So so we don't know exactly what was happening in Paul's vision, but we know what he saw was so glorious, it was so breathtaking, that he actually struggled to find words to describe what happened. Paul trying to explain his vision would be like one of us wandering into the deep jungles of Papua New Guinea and trying to explain electricity to a tribal jungle group who has pre-Stone Age level of technology. Right? I mean, the, the difficulty of explaining electricity would not be to their lack of intelligence. It would be to their lack of experience. I mean, where do you start? Electricity is something that kind of like it moves like in the vines. And if you touch it, it goes bzz, and it like gives... Light and power. That's really the best I can do. And it's really sad because my dad's an electrician. He's going to be very disappointed when he hears this. Sorry, Father. How do you explain something they never experienced? Paul, in his glorious vision of God on the throne, he didn't have words to explain. Words would not suffice. This was impressive. So you can imagine the Corinthian church now saying, well, Paul, why didn't you tell us this before, man? I mean, you are a spiritual giant. You are the man. Forget these false teachers. You had this vision. Whoa. But that seems to be exactly what Paul didn't want to happen. Which is why, by the way, he talks in the third person. Did you notice that? Maybe you read this and thought, who who in the world is Paul talking about? But when you look at verse 7, it's clear he's talking about himself. And the reason he speaks like this is, he says, a man in Christ, a man who I know in Christ, is because Paul is so uncomfortable talking about something that draws attention to himself and away from God. He doesn't want that. In fact, look at verse 6 again. He says, for though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Paul had a glorious, breathtaking, beyond words vision of God. And the applause of man was there for his taking. He could have written books about his vision. He could have gone on tour about his vision. Could have made a name for himself for how you can get your own visions from God. That's what the false teachers did. They came to church and they they boasted of their visions, milking it for all it's worth to get influence over the Corinthian church. But do you see the difference between the Apostle Paul and the false teachers? Paul's not some con man out to deceive the Corinthians. He was a loving parent who wanted the best for the church. And so he refrained talking about this vision so no one would think too highly of him. Now, the reality is... We, we don't expect someone to be concerned about others thinking too highly of us. The reality is most of us lose sleep because people aren't thinking enough about us. But, but that wasn't Paul. 
His example confronts us in how we should think about the world's applause. His refusal to take center stage highlights his goal in his ministry. His goal was not to be noticed by men. Rather, his goal was to be humble. He had a longing for God to be at center stage, for God to be glorified. So what about you? Let me ask you, how do you think in your own life about the world's applause? About other people's opinion of you? What does your desire for the world's applause say about the goal of your life? About who you really want to be on center stage? Paul's vision here, we see alluding to it would play an important role later in his endurance. At the end of the day, church family, there's only one opinion of us that matters. It's the Lord's opinion. Amen. That's what Paul was living for. And I really think for most of us, we say that, and yeah, that sounds great. Really do, but it's, it's hard for us to believe. We, we acknowledge that we want to live as Christians, that we want to live for God's approval. But at the end of the day, when it comes to how we live our life, It's hard for us to believe, isn't it? Especially when the world around us tells us the complete opposite. Their definition of true greatness is for the world to be impressed with us, not God. Especially when living for God's approval tends to be costly. Church family, if our identity depends on the opinion of others, you know what happens? What happens is that you and I become slaves to a ruthless master. A master that is not committed to our good, but is dead set on our destruction. The respect of this world can drive us to lose sleep, become obsessive at our jobs, neglect our responsibility as husbands, wives, or parents, fall into constant worry, fear, even driving us to sacrifice relationships, friendships, or our own family. And before long, every conversation is covered by frantic questions. How did I look? How did I come across? What do they think of me? Did they like me? Were they impressed by me? And before long, what happens is your joy is absolutely ruined. And the reason your joy is ruined is because God created us not to gaze into the mirror at ourselves, but to be a mirror that reflects His glory. That's, again, why we exist. That's why we're here, to show the world what He is like. So how do we get there? How do we get past the thing that kills our joy and ruins our happiness? How do we get beyond needing the praise and applause of this world to be truly free by seeking the approval of the only one and the only opinion that matters? Well, very simply, we need to dismiss it. Not only the world's applause and how we think about it, but... But secondly, and and really, we need to dismiss how we thought about weakness. That's our second point. We need to discount or dismiss how we once thought about weakness. Verses 7 to 10 of our text tells us, as Paul's discussion of this very thing, let's read those together. He says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation... A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. 
concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that he might, it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Again, weakness is not something that's celebrated in our world, is it? We do everything we can to avoid weakness. We spend hours in the gym to preserve and protect physical strength. We go to school and read books, watch tutorials to, to learn in order to protect intellectual strength. We spend hours, days, and weeks on our hobbies, doing whatever it takes to grow our emotional strength. And all around us, we're told that weakness is a disease to be avoided. I think that's what makes the Apostle Paul's words about weakness so shocking to us. Because in verse 9, he doesn't think of it as a disease to be avoided. He is bragging gladly of his weakness. And in verse 10, he actually displays contentment with his weaknesses. He's okay with his weaknesses. I mean, who in their right mind delights in their weaknesses? Who boasts or brags in their weaknesses? You, you just don't do that. So, so what happened in Paul to go from the way the world thinks about weakness to actually boasting, delighting, and being content in his weaknesses? Well, we go back to verse 7. That's where it starts. Right after Paul was caught up into paradise, we're told he was given a thorn in his flesh. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what this thorn actually is. We don't know exactly what the thorn was. Most likely, it was a chronic physical problem. But we just don't know. Whatever the case, if the thorn came after he received the vision from God, you know what that means? It would mean that, that he would have had this thorn in his flesh without relief for 14 years. But then we ask the question, okay, who gave the thorn? Well, we see it in the text very clearly. In one sense, it was from Satan, right? It was Satan's messenger with the purpose of making Paul miserable. That was his intent, his desire in giving it. But there's more going on than just this. As we've talked about recently, Satan wasn't the only one involved. That phrase there, a thorn was given to me, is what's known in Greek grammar as a divine passive. It's just a fancy way of saying God gave the thorn. Ultimately, God who was the one who gave the thorn and God's purpose, however, was different from Satan's. God's purpose was to protect Paul from conceit, the very last thing that Satan would want to do. And so in that, we see a picture of Romans 8.28 at work. Remember Romans 8.28, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. All things, including thorns. Including thorns that are meant to make you miserable, work together for good. And because God is in control, He will checkmate every one of Satan's moves. Because God is good, we can know that His use of the thorn in our lives will be for our good. So we can trust Him. And so with a, with a thorn digging in Paul's flesh, making him miserable and causing him great pain, what does Paul do? Look at verse 8. He prayed. Verse 8 says, Concerning this thing I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. 
I don't know exactly how this looked, but, but that word pleading does not connote just a, a weak prayer. It is, God, take it away, this hurts. He asked God again and again and again. And listen, this is a great model for us. When we suffer, we should pray. It is right to ask God to take away the source of our pain. Because we know that, that God does heal. God often does bring relief. So we should pray. We're told in James chapter 5, verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? You know what to do? Let him pray. I mean, is it possible that we don't have because we're not asking? Paul prayed. He pleaded with God three times. But I think when Jesus' answer came, it must have been a difficult pill for Paul to swallow. I mean, imagine, here's Paul. He's, he's hurting and he knows God who has the ability to take his pain away. And eventually the answer comes back to Paul and God says, my answer is no. Actually, God answers Paul's request for relief, but... His answer to Paul's prayer did not come in the same way that the Apostle Paul thought it would. See, Paul wanted the thorn gone. God answered his prayer by giving him more grace. Verse 9, and he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. What a glorious verse, by the way, to memorize, to meditate. It's a wonderful promise for us as we hold on to as followers of Jesus Christ. But what, is, what does Paul exactly mean when he says weakness? How do, we, how do we know what he's talking about? Well, down to verse 10 actually fills out exactly what he means by weakness. He says in verse 10, For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses. And then the four words that follow actually color in what he means by weaknesses. Insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. As one writer puts it, he says, weaknesses, get this, weaknesses are not sins, but experiences and circumstances that are hard to bear and that we can't remove, either because they are beyond our control or because love dictates we not return evil for evil. The reality is, some of you here this morning are facing great suffering. And you have been for some time. You didn't ask your loved one to die of cancer. You didn't ask for your depression, your anxiety, your fatigue. You didn't ask to live with constant pain, but here you are. You didn't invite the ridicule of those around you. You didn't ask for people to think you're a joke. You didn't ask for your family to distance themselves from you. You didn't ask for unregenerate children to reject you, but here you are. The reality is many of us have prayed to God in our difficult circumstances. And often there have been times where he has answered our prayer by taking away the thorn. And listen, we should praise God for that. But what happens when we plead with God to take it away? And his answer to us is the same answer he gave Paul. Child, not this time. My grace is sufficient for you. I have good purposes in letting this remain. Friend, family, whether you're in that situation now, whether you find yourself in that situation tomorrow, how do you respond? I really do think the burning question for each of us in a text like this is, can I trust God when that's His answer to me? We struggle with this, don't we? I mean, I mean how can I trust in a God who has the ability to take away the pain, but He won't? 
And before long, our hearts will become bitter and we end up pushing God away to see if we can find something else to serve as a solution to our pain. I don't like God's prescription for the solution, so I want to find some other way to deal with this, to get this completely out of my life. Well, that difficulty to trust God in our pain and weaknesses, it's it's been a challenge for the people of God since the very beginning, hasn't it? With Adam and Eve, it was a struggle to believe that he was good. I mean, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they they each, their path was tainted by a fear that, that took the threat they were facing into their own hands to try and find a solution apart from God and their fear. Let's not get started on the people of God, the nation of Israel. They struggled to trust God at every turn when they were surrounded by enemies, despite His constant delivery of deliverance from them. Brothers and sisters, the difficulty of trusting God, it's real. Each one of us have a tendency to rely on ourselves. The truth of the matter is, we all long to be the master of our own fate. To have some sort of sense of control of our destiny. So if the thought of insult or hardship or persecution or calamity makes you cringe when it comes to following Jesus, let me encourage you to do this. One simple thing, and that is, remember. We just sang about that, didn't we? Remember. Think back to the time when you weren't a Christian as best you can. The truth is we rejected God and we rejected His rule in our lives. We were out to make a name for ourselves. We were out to find happiness and meaning on our own terms apart from God. But now if you're sitting here and you're a follower of Jesus, that means that there was a time in your life when you were confronted with God's call to take up your cross and follow Him. To lose your life for His sake and the sake of His gospel. And as difficult as it was for you to trust in that moment, to trust in God, there was a moment by God's grace when he opened your eyes to see Jesus as trustworthy. To see that you were weak, unable to save yourself from your own sin. And in that moment, by God's grace, you trusted in God. Reminds me of the story of of Landry Fields. If you don't know that name or maybe it rings a bell, Landry was a, a starter for the New York Knicks and Toronto Raptors in the National Basketball Association. And And then he suffered three season-ending injuries, back to back to back. In reflection, Landry wrote a piece that was released publicly on Desiring God. It's John Piper's website. He said this. He said, I've never struggled to believe in God. I already had a gospel of my own. The promise that love and wealth are the world's to give to the popular and gifted. I didn't need to trust God because I'd already trusted another God. The NBA. When the injuries came, I started reading scripture. I had the odd, unsettling thought. I don't think I'm really saved. When the injuries came, Landry's hopes and dreams, they were shattered. But during that time, Landry actually heard the gospel and became a Christian. So so he went on in this piece and he wrote, When I first started getting injured, I prayed, God, leave it up to me and leave me alone. Now I pray... Thank you, Lord, for doing this and driving me back to you. Suffering has made the gospel real to me. Now, I know none of us play in the NBA, but the reality is every Christian has that same testimony of counting the cost, finding God trustworthy. And in the moment of decision to follow Christ, there was no regret, there was joy and freedom. 
See, we might not see it right away, but over time, God brings a new clarity as we think back to it. Friend, do you remember? Do you? The God you trusted then is the same God who who says, do you know my grace sufficient is sufficient for you? Who says to you, my power is made perfect in weakness. You can trust him again. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I wonder how you would think about weakness. The world will tell you it's a disease to avoid. But the way to happiness is to look within yourself for joy and strength. Just just be true to yourself. It's what every single media outlet is pushing to anyone over the age of 18 and specifically under the age of 18. Just be true to yourself. It's postmodernism at its finest. It's humanism at its finest. Follow what you know deep down inside to be right. But you see, the Bible has a very different message than the rest of the world. The Bible teaches that God created us to know, love, and follow Him. And so our rejection of Him and His rule over our lives is actually the heart of our very sin. When we put ourselves in charge of our lives, we make a mess and end up hurting the people around us. But worse, our rejection of God puts us at odds with Him. And and that's our greatest problem. See, the good news of Christianity is that because God is good and will judge all sin, even though we deserve in our rebellion to be given over to hell an eternity apart from God under His righteous wrath, God stepped into our shoes. He became a man. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I failed to live. And so when He died on the cross, He didn't die for His own sin. He died as a substitute, taking on Himself the full wrath of God that we might find forgiveness, that whoever would turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone would find a new life and would be made a new creation. So listen, if life's going well for you right now and, and all this talk about weakness just sounds like mumbo jumbo, if you, if you feel more strong this morning than you do weak, don't be deceived. Comfort and ease can lull us into thinking that we're actually in charge. It can lead us into buying a lie that we don't need God. But do you really think you are the master of your fate when every day of your life you are surrounded by millions of forces that you have no control over? It's a delusion. Your strength is a mirage. The weakness you know about yourself is not something to hide. It is a wake-up call to the truth that you cannot save yourself. It's a wake-up call to the reality that God, in His love, has done everything necessary to purchase our salvation, our forgiveness, and our freedom. So this morning, my pleading with you, for those who don't know Jesus, that you would turn from your sins. That we look to Jesus and trust in Him to be forgiven. And we can stand on the promise of God that His grace is sufficient for you, for me, in our weaknesses. The main part of the section in verses 7 and 10, really the main idea of this text, lies in this. It's that weakness in the Christian life provides a platform for God to display His strength. Weakness in the Christian life, it, it, it provides a platform for God to display His strength. It's the stage that's set to let God flex His muscles and bring glory to Himself. 
Again, verse 9. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Look, Paul's not some weirdo who enjoys pain. He's, he's able to boast of his weakness because of what it brings. It's the power of Christ. In other words, in our affliction, Jesus gives us himself. That's the gift. Sometimes the difficulty is we don't understand what God's doing. And that's why we push him away. As a, as a parent, I see a slight parallel with this even with my own kids. When I, when I take my four-year-old son to the doctor and, and they want to poke him with a needle, no matter how hard I try to explain to that beautiful brain exactly what they're doing, it will never make sense to him and his, perspe- his perspective, from his perspective. All he says and all he knows is, Daddy is letting someone hurt me. And all I can say to him in that moment is, Son, I love you. Please trust me. You need to trust me. You may not understand this, but it is for your good. I had a real life illustration on the night I first preached this text about nine days ago, Friday night. My brother had asked me to fill in a D now at Schindler uh, Baptist off of Westside. Um, it started at 6.30, and I had to be there at 6. And if you know me, I hate being late to things. Just, it just turns me into a monster. I'm not going to say that there's a blame there for my parents who left me at school every day um, and then had to come an hour later after all my friends had gone. I'm not going to say they had any sort of makeup. Um, I only say, by, by God's grace, I'm sure there's 15 different things that I'll do to my kids <laughs> where they'll look back and say um, that very thing. But, um, so it started at, started at 6. Uh, I had to be there by 6. I wanted to take my wife. My, my mother had offered to watch our kids. But if you don't know, Addie does gymnastics at 4 o'clock at Fantastic Gymnastics in Yulee. And that's kind of our daddy-daughter time a lot of the days. Um, we just get time to us. And I didn't quite want to sacrifice that, that that day. It hadn't been a while, actually, since I've been able to take her. And so... I thought, okay, starts at 4, ends at 5, get home by 5.30, pick up Amy. Actually, I wonder if my mom, would, would we, we just drop our car off with all the car seats. She could meet us at the house so I don't have to drive all the way to Muscle White. That way we can take her car, cut some time. The mom was willing to do it, praise God, so nice of her. So I get there at 4 o'clock at gymnastics. It's just me and all the gymnastics moms. That's kind of weird. But um, <laughs> the only dad there. But I listen, I have no idea where that girl gets her core strength. But I know it ain't from me. So um, she's doing awesome. We're having a great time. Waving at me, blowing kisses through the window and so on. Uh, and it's 5 o'clock. It's time to leave. But, but the door um, to get into the gymnastics room jams. Not, not locked. Not unlocked jammed. Um, and there's a good five to ten minutes where the teacher's trying to open the door to let the kids out of the gymnastics gym and cannot do it. And I'm thinking, everyone else is thinking, get my kid out of there. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to be late. Um, and so they finally found another exit. It, it pushed us back another ten minutes. And so I was starting to, starting to move a little bit, starting just to to look ahead and not at those little speed limit signs. Um, and uh, it was raining, so I had to slow down a bit. And I was, I was late and came in. Amy was ready. She had the car already started. And 
dropped Addy off, took Amy, started driving, still running about 10 minutes late. And that just irks me. It's not a big deal, but it just irks me because of pride and sin. So I turn off on 103rd Street, west side, and um, we're stuck in traffic. And I look down to see how many, how many miles it is to Schindler Road. It's about two miles. And then the, my mom's car starts beeping at me. Like there's this orange light that just starts beeping over and over again. And I look at Amy and I'm like, Amy, what, what's this beeping noise? She's like, I don't know what that beeping noise is. I'm like, that's so weird. So I'm looking down at the console and then she looks up and says, car? And I had time to look up. I really wish I had that three seconds back where I was looking at the console. Look up and I slam on brakes, but not enough. And I destroy the front bumper of my father's Pathfinder. And I just thought immediately, this is bad. <laughs> this is bad. There's a rule in our house. When you wreck one of Tim Page's cars, which is for some reason happened on multiple occasions, um, you, just, you just call him and you hang up. And then he, he has a chance to process his first reaction. And the spirit works a little bit and he goes back to the, the biblical reaction. Um, so thought this is bad. And not only that, but now I'm going to be super late. Like I'm going to be so late to preach. And so I get out and immediately there's this, this young girl. She's maybe 20. And I'm saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Are you okay? Are you okay? I'm a pastor. Um, I, I, I don't, I haven't, I haven't, by the way, I haven't been in an accident in 18 years of driving ever. Um, and so I thought, okay, I know we're supposed to do something here. I, I have to go preach somewhere. Is there... Is there any way I can just give you my phone number and you can call me right here? In fact, I'm the pastor at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. If you Google this phone number, like you'll look at the website. will just pop up right here. You'll see my face. You can track me down, I swear. Um, and she was either very naive or very foolish and said, that's, that's fine. I thought, okay, well, I'm still preaching tonight. Um, but now we've got the issue of my father's car. Um, so I called my mom, being a wise man, and uh, talked to her. And um, we get to the, the place finally, and the front bumper is destroyed, and it's not looking good, and I'm thinking, oh, goodness. I've got about 10 minutes to preach, and I get a phone call from the girl's phone number, and it's her mother. And immediately, I just start to grovel. <laughs> like, listen, as a, as a father of, of two girls, I... I understand exactly what you're thinking right now, and I can't tell you how sorry I'm not told her the same about. I'll send you a picture of my driver's license. Like I will send you a picture of my dad's insurance card. I, I, don't, I don't know where that is, but I'll contact him. I'll get that. This is the situation. And you could hint, you could see a hint of Mama Bear in her tone. And I thought, okay, well, um, certainly right now I've been a great display of weakness. But I'm going to go, <laughs> I'm going to make a bold suggestion here. And hopefully she won't yell at me. And I thought, ma'am, is there any way I could pray for you right now? Um, because my heart, is, my heart is really broken, and I'm really terribly sorry. And she said, you, you certainly can. Um, and I don't know if she knew the Lord. Um, I don't know. I, I prayed that she did. I prayed over the situation. I prayed for forgiveness. I prayed this text. I'm going to preach this. My neck's starting to throb, by the way. <laughs> thinking, I hope this is not my thorn for 14 years. But, but Lord, if, if, you, if you sovereignly allowed that gymnastics door to stay locked so that I would maybe just pay a little less attention 
And I would end up hitting this car just for the opportunity to pray the gospel over someone. It's worth it. Ooh, that did not... uh, I would like to tell you that I came to that conclusion that night. (laughs) I didn't. But I did come to that conclusion shortly after. That the reality is, it's just a car. Not my car, easy for me to say. (laughs) Didn't work really well on my dad when I told him this. Um, (laughs) Pray for him. But no, the reality is, it is. It's just a car, and the opportunity to pray with somebody, to encourage them in Christ... It's really the only thing there that's of lasting eternal value. See, our weakness is an opportunity for God's grace and power to make his home in our life. So if, if you're confronted with your weakness, insults, calamity, persecution, or foolish driving tonight, this morning, my, my charge to you is don't push God away when it hurts. Don't push away the one who loves you and who is committed to your good even in that pain and humility. All that to say, one of my tasks in preaching this text this morning is to help us understand that that suffering with Jesus is better than comfort without Jesus. Like, do you know that? Do you see him? And on the flip side of that, with, with faith, there's a profound freedom and joy We are actually able to say, let the world throw its worst at me because I have Christ. And that confidence, it's way different than the power of self in the poem that Henley wrote that we began with. In fact, in the early part of the 20th century, a journalist named Dorothy Day responded to Henley's poem with her own. And she entitled this poem, Conquered. I'd like to read it to you as we close. It says, Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud under the rule which men call chance. My head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid... That spite the menace of the years keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. True greatness is not some sort of self-centered strength to overcome the odds and make a name for yourself. To be invictus, the unconquerable... True greatness comes when Christ conquers you by his love. When he becomes the captain of our soul, when we delight in his rule over our lives, that's why we are created and that's a life worth living. The question is, will that be your legacy of greatness? Let's stand together as we close. Father, we know the the God of this age is blinding the minds of unbelievers that we cannot behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we come to you now as your church. We come to the God who spoke light into creation. And we ask you to open our eyes.
to see you for who you are, to see that you are trustworthy even in the difficulties and pain in life, to see that hardship and pain with Christ is better than, than comfort without him. Would you give us the faith we need to really believe that? Give us the courage and strength that is not within ourselves, but in you to trust you and bring glory to your name that we would be a church, that we would be a people who live our lives that way, that shows the world that there is a better hope, a better joy found in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.